vessel. So for the shamatha practices we've been cultivating for the last five weeks or so, these all pertain directly to dream yoga. It's almost as if they were made for dream yoga, each one of them in a different way. Uh, mindfulness of breathing is just the best technique I know for getting a good night's sleep. You know, it's mellow, it's relaxing, it's soothing, it calms the discursive mind. Uh, if you wake up in the middle of the night, the best way is just to meditate for a while. And then if you fall asleep, you fall asleep. If you don't, well, you meditate. You know. So that, as I've said so many times before, getting a good night's sleep um, is as important as breathing and as important as eating. You know, it's one of the basic nourishments we really need. So there's that. That's kind of obvious. And then we have the practice, the shamatha method, that is most commonly taught in the Dzogchen tradition, the Mahamudra tradition, settling the mind in its natural state. And as it is a wonderfully suitable shamatha preparation for venturing into not only the relative nature of the mind, but penetrating to the substrate, consciousness and right on beyond, so is the practice, let's call it taking the mind as a path, to my mind, simply the optimal, the best shamatha method there is that we can really do, that's practical, that it's accessible, inviting, and helpful for developing the ability to um, dream lucidly. Right? And it's so obvious, it almost doesn't need any comment, but you know me, I'll keep on talking. And that is, we're developing lucidity with respect to the mind and the waking state. Right? We're not mistaking thoughts for their reference. And when we're caught in rumination, we do that all the time. When we're sitting and getting really angry at someone, what are we doing? We're completely conflating our thoughts with the person or the situation or you're reliving a trauma or a bad memory or whatever it is, completely conflating the mental image of just creations in the space of the mind with no substance, conflating them with the referent and, of course, reifying the referent. And whenever we reify the referent, we're just making ourselves so vulnerable for suffering. Exactly as in a non-lucid dream. We can suffer tremendously, even physically. Even fit, you can even suffer, it's so bizarre. But you can suffer physically in a dream, and you don't have a body. But you think you do, and that's enough. You know, somebody punches you in the jaw, it can really hurt. Right? And yet, if you're lucid, like that woman who just took the knife and thrust it into her belly, if you're lucid, she didn't experience any pain, what's, where's the belly? You know, there's no physicality there, and so forth. So, as a practical method for bringing clarity, remember the, again the metaphor, holding a light aloft in a dark room, the dark room being a non-lucid dream, the light being the clarity, the discernment, the recognition that it is a dream, and then everything is different. Everything is different. And it's instantaneous. Generally, in my, in my experience, it's always instantaneous. I, I'm not non-lucid and then a little bit lucid, a little bit more, a little, little bit more, a little bit more. No, it's just boom, boom. You know, you see an anomaly and boom. Now, can you be more lucid? Definitely. But there is a real discontinuity there. As when people really receive pointing out instructions, there's a sudden shift of, of the axis, a shift of perspective, that you're simply no longer viewing your waking experience from the same perspective of being a sentient being in that waking experience, something of a shift, something of a glimmer, something of an aspect of Rigpa is shining through. And you see the same, same phenomena, 
but now from a different perspective. So I'll elaborate. I'm going to come back to this, the settling the mind, because that will be our practice for the afternoon again. But then thirdly, the practice that I've really been highlighting and will continue to highlight for this whole retreat, and that is shamatha without a sign, culminating in, merging mind or dissolving your mind, dissolving your awareness into space. Well, that's just the perfect preparation for venturing into lucid, dreamless sleep. It's perfect. Because in lucid, dreamless sleep, all that's left of your mind is its kind of luminous nucleus, the substrate consciousness. And all that's left of these multiple fields of experience is just the unconfigured, empty substrate. And so there you are when you release your mind into space. And you're resting there in the sheer awareness, but the awareness of simply an open, objectless expanse, free of appearances, well, then you've done your best facsimile of having achieved shamatha. And you've done your best facsimile of being in a lucid, dreamless sleep, sleep state. So, there it is. So that's how these, these all fit. But now I'd like to come back just to these very quintessential teachings. It's, it's one page of teachings that I've taught again innumerable times from Lirap Lingma. I've excerpted that. Uh, and just very brief context here. I'm, and I'm going to take the essence of the excerpt. The excerpt is about one page, and it usually takes me an hour or two to teach it. I'm not going to do that now. I'm just plucking out kind of the, the real core of it. But it is good to know what is the context because I've taken it out of a much broader text. It's not a very long text, maybe 100 pages or so. I've translated the whole text, haven't published it. Um, but it's within the context, it's a, it's a whole path. It's just like so many of Dujum Lingba's revealed teachings. It's the whole path, uh, all the way through stage of generation, completion, and the and rainbow body. And it's done in about, I don't know, 80 pages or so. It's spectacular. Uh, his, heart, his commentary to the heart essence of Vimalamitra, the Vimalinintik it's called. Uh, and it starts out with seven common preliminaries. Seven common preliminaries. This is common to Sutrayana and Vajrayana. I won't give all of them, but I'll just tell, tell, tell the very gist of them. Uh, most of those seven has to do with completely, I mean really the essence of it is the four thoughts that turn the mind. Most of those seven have to do with just cultivating a profound, thorough disillusionment with all the allures, all the attractions of samsara. You know, uh, if you haven't done that, then you're really not ready to set out on the path of Dzogchen or Vajrayana. You know, you're still mucking about in samsara, still thinking it has some hope. You know, this is going to work out well. I need you know countless lifetimes in the past, but one more is going to do it. Uh, so it's all about that. Mostly it's about that. And then it's about Guru Yoga. It's about establishing a truly authentic relationship with your guide. You know, It's like wanting to hike from, let's say, India to Mongolia. Or I actually read an account of some... It was during the... Uh, during Just a brief tangent, but it was back in the 1920s. Big mess in, in Russia. You know, It was the Bolsheviks and it was the White and the Red Armies and so forth. And it was... People just killing each other because they thought you were red, or oh, I thought you were white, and oh, I'm white and you're red, and you know. And so there were two guys that were imprisoned, one from Pol- uh, from Poland. The author was Polish. You read it, yeah, Patrice. Quite interesting, yeah. And so there they were. They managed to escape, and then they walked from Russia down to made it to India, didn't they? I think they made it all the way down to Tibet. Well, they actually, they made it down to Tibet, but in any case, I mean that's a long walk. <laughs> that's the long and the short of it. 
or one of my teachers, Geshe Ngama Nima. I trained with him years ago. So I, he was born in, in, uh, in Russia, Buryat, way, way north, South Russia, northern Mongolia. And he had a great yearning to really study Dharma well. He was Mongolian. And uh, so he finished his initial training, several years of training, Galupa style, you know, debating and all of that. And then he wanted to go to the big, the big show, as they say, the big show, to, Gan- to I think it was, De- I think, what was it, Ganden, one of the three monastic universities, but in Lhasa. That's where you, that would be like the Oxford, Cambridge, the Harvard, Yale, the best of the best. And he said, I've got to, I want to get the best education I possibly can. You know how long it took him to walk to school? One year. One year to walk. And when he finally got there, I think it was Depum. I think it was Depum. I could be mistaken, but it was one of the three. He finally got there, you know, after walking a year. And they said, well, you know, those years of training you had in Mongolia, that doesn't count. Yeah, that doesn't count. You have to start, you know, start from scratch here. He spent 35 years getting his Geshe degree. 35 years. You know? Formidable. And then when he finished it, then he went on pilgrimage. Well, this is all a tangent. It's kind of a fun tangent. But it's a tangent to the notion that if you're setting out on some great expedition, whether to climb to the top of Mount Everest or to walk from Siberia down to, to Tibet or India or what have you, uh, if you're going to have a guide or the pioneers, I mean, I love the stories, you know, in the 19, 1850s, 1840s, you had these wagon trains heading across. And they had a guide. They always had a guide. They didn't say, well, I'll just shoot myself. You know, they always had a guide. But you really want to know the guide. Does this guy know? And they were all men, so I'll just say men. Does this guy know how to get there? Has he done it before? Has he taken anybody? Will he protect us? Will he just take our money and split? Because it's so easy to do. He's got a horse. You've got wagons. Who do you think is going to run faster? He can split any time he likes, you know. And so do you really trust this person? Will this person really take care for you? If you are attacked, you may be attacked, and so forth. So that's the final point. Among these seven common preliminaries is establishing an authentic, meaningful, trusting, pure relationship with your lama, your guide. Now we're really we're talking about spiritual guide here. Because you're about to head out on the greatest expedition that occurs in the universe, moving, you know, moving from your homestead and samsara to Buddhahood. So having a guide you can trust. One or more. It doesn't have to be just one. So that's, and, but then the final one, having established all of those, okay, you've gotten totally disillusioned, you know that you, want it, you, want, you really now have a passionate yearning to achieve perfect awakening. You found a guide. You have a, a, an authentic relationship with him. Now, okay, that was the first six out of seven comment preliminaries. And the seventh one, make your mind serviceable. And it's, it's taking the mind as a path, settling the mind as a path. And then after that comes Vajrasattva and Mandala offering and so forth and so on. And then comes stage regeneration completion. Then comes Tekshut and Tutkil and then Rainbow Body. And then, you know, you're finished. And so that's the, that's the broader context here. Which makes it very emphatically obvious that in order to um, really devote oneself to the practice of shamatha and for that matter Vipassana, you don't have to finish five sets of 100,000 of Vajrasattva and so forth and so on. Some people, sometimes it gets so rigid as if you're not allowed to breathe until you finish. Oh, you haven't finished your preliminaries? What's wrong? Well, go finish your preliminaries. You know, as if like, that's a magic key? I'm sorry, but it's not. 
my Lama Gyatso Rinpoche referred to one, one, I'm going to keep it totally anonymous, one person he knew. Three times did all the preliminaries. Three times, 100,000 times five. He said, this person still doesn't have renunciation. That's fine to do all the rituals, but you know, if you don't know renunciation, then exactly where you are, you have, where are you? You're not even moving in the right direction. You just went through a whole bunch of rituals, like three hazings to get into the great sorority or fraternity of Vajrayana Buddhism. I think we need a bit more practical. If they work, fantastic. If they don't, you know, there's a lot of elbow room here in Buddhism. There's not just one way. So, having said that, let's go to Lerup Lingba. And I'm just taking out just the essence of one page, so it's only like a paragraph or so. And I'm going to reread just a little bit. This is a refresher, okay? And explain a little bit more, because this won't take a lot of words, because I think most of you are familiar, but a bit of fine-tuning. When this is done correctly, it's really powerful. When it's not, it's not. So let your gaze be vacant, he says, with your body and mind inwardly relaxed, and without allowing the continuum of your consciousness to fade from a state of lucidity and vivid clarity, sustain it naturally and radiantly. Well, that was a long sentence, but it means something really simple, and it's symbolized with one finger. Just that resting, that stillness, it's effortless. You don't need to flex your mental muscles. All you need to do is release grasping. And what remains is that naturally luminous, clear, radiant, still awareness. And that's your home. Get used to it, recognize it, identify it, and see if you cannot move away from there. Okay? So in other words, you're starting with awareness of awareness. Then, do not contaminate it with many critical judgments. This happens all the time, right? Especially in awareness of awareness. Oh, I'm not doing it right. I think I should be doing something more. Oh, is this right? I'm not sure. Oh, am I progressing? Oh, how's it going? I don't know. Get over it, you know? So do not contaminate it with many critical judgments. Do not take a short-sighted view of meditation. You know about that. And avoid great hopes and fears that your meditation will turn out one way and not another. At the beginning, have many daily sessions, each of them of brief duration, and focus well in each one. And then we come to the core. I'm giving you just the core, and now the core of the core, the hard core. Okay? Whenever you meditate, bear in mind the phrase, be without distraction and without grasping, and put this into practice. Okay? You have to have crystal clear, crystal clear clarity on that one. Be without distraction and without grasping. You know what it means, but I just... Distraction is pretty straightforward. But even there, I'm tempted to say it's binary. Either I'm looking at Michael or I'm being distracted. I'm wandering off to Michelle or to John or to uh, Hiramor or what have you. So that's kind of like, well, you're in, are, you, are, you, are you on target or not? So that's binary. Not quite that simple, though. Right? Not quite that simple. With, we're talking about excitation here. Right? But remember, there's coarse, medium, and subtle excitation. So sure, binary is when the, my, the focus is... Michael, and I'm gazing over there at Robert. Oh. And then Michael said, Hello, hello, I'm your meditative object. What, what, what? You know, so, coarse excitation, right? But then, there's medium excitation, right? Where I'm mostly gazing over at Michael, but I can see, I'm still over at Robert, but if Michael moves his arm, I'll notice. But Robert can see, I'm looking right at him. But also, Michael, go ahead and move your arm. Gotcha. See, I knew it as soon as, of course. 
it's there in the peripheral field, and so and so then Michael Michael sending me sign language. I can send him sign language back there, and you know, and meanwhile I'm, you know, attending to to Robert. Well, we do that all the time, right? We're focusing on the breath. We're focusing on the mind. But meantime, the commentary, the chit chat, the noise, where we're actually mostly focusing on the noise, but kind of keeping, you know, like you're making dinner and keeping one eye on the kids, but you're really focusing primarily on the dinner, right? Well, the dinner was distraction in this case. And then there's subtle excitation, and that's you're mostly on. But there's that noise, there's that static in the background. And it's kind of pulling you away, pulling you away. Right? So even that's not binary. But the grasping, I thought I'd linger just a little bit on grasping, and then we won't need to talk about it again. Because the word grasping comes up an awful lot. It's everywhere in all schools of Buddhism. Graha, graha, in, it is in Sanskrit, or in Zimba in Tibetan, everywhere. The, great, the famous Sakya in the Sakya tradition, Sakya school of Tibetan Buddhism. Zimba juna tawa me. If grasping is occurring, you don't have the view. There's no view. If grasping, then you don't have the view. You don't have the view. Well, let's just, just pop right over it because I'm going to be weaving back and forth here. Lucid dreaming. Zimba juna tawa me. If you think you're the person in the dream, you're not lucid. If you think those are actual people there, you're not lucid. That's grasping. That's reification. And then, in which case, for as long as you're grasping, as long as you're reifying, thinking, this is who I am, well, then, you don't have the view. You don't have the... It's called yanda pitawa. You don't have an authentic view. You're not seeing the dream as it is. You're seeing it as it isn't. And now you get to suffer. Right? So that's grasping. But now, in this practice, settling the mind in its natural state, this whole theme of grasping really takes a smooth, a broad band, a band width, from very subtle to very coarse, right? So even looking over at, um, at Catherine, for example, is, is Catherine here? Is, is Catherine Skiro here? Oh yeah, she's right over there, you know, like that. Well, that's grasping. Because when I identify Catherine Skiro, that means I just identified her, I've carved, see, I have a whole visual field here, and it doesn't have real borders. It's just a whole bunch of patterns of colors, right? But Catherine Skiro, well, she's a person, and she has a body. And so the conceptual designation, she's right over there. She's sitting in that chair, you know, with the yellow, the yellow blouse, yellow shirt. And so then the cookie cutter comes out and carves out everything around her and then pulls her out. That's Catherine. Where is she? She's right over there. That's Catherine Skiro, right over there, you know? And then we all do the cookie cutter. Not her chair, not, her, not the background. You know, she's the one that has the hair. She has, she has those two feet. She has those clothing. You know, she, that person. And so there's nothing delusional here. I mean, that is Catherine Skiro. But what have I done? I've now decontextualized her. I've cut her out of the fabric of all the reality around her, as if those borders are real, right? Because she starts here and she ends there, right? Even in a lucid dream, you could be looking around in a lucid dream. Is, is Catherine Skiro here? Oh, yeah, there she is. Yeah, there she is, right over there. And you know, you know it's a dream. But within your dream, you can say, is Catherine Skiro, is Catherine Skiro showing up in my dream? Yeah, she's right over there. Yeah. So even that, you're not reifying now, because you're lucid. But if somebody comes and says, Alan, is, is Catherine here? Say, yeah, yeah, she's right over there. You're not reifying. There's no delusion there at all. But nevertheless... That labeling, Catherine Skiro, has just carved her out and separated her from that which is not Catherine Skiro. Right? Is that how Catherine Skiro exists? 
carved out with nice, neat contours, you know, separate from everything else. No, but that's what grasping does. It, it, um, it, it cut, cuts and pastes, or at least it cuts. And then it pastes, because then we lay all kinds of stuff on it. And so the point coming back, again, weaving back and forth, because they're so close, lucid dreaming and becoming lucid with respect to your mind while you're meditating, taking the mind as a path, that, I'm going to say this again, it's really important, and that is, what is the perspective you're seeking to emulate or approximate as you're attending to the space of your mind and whatever arises within it? And that it goes for both objective appearances as well as subjective impulses, desires, emotions, and so forth. What is the perspective you're seeking to approximate or emulate? I'll tell you. The perspective of the substrate consciousness. You're seeking to approximate that. You're seeking to approximate viewing your mind not from inside the mind, but from the perspective of this discerning but non-conceptual luminous, bright, and actually blissful substrate consciousness, which, of course, is the origin from which all the subjective impulses of your mind emerge. Almost like an out-of-mind experience. You know, that you're not enmeshed in it. You're not, it will begin that way. It has to. So in the classic treatise it says, you're using your mind to observe the mind. That is, your own perspective is enmeshed in language, personal history, and so forth and so on. So it's messy, it's entangled, very much entangled. But as you release, as you release and release, releasing coarse, medium, and subtle excitation, and your perspective is just that unflickering candle flame of your own awareness, which doesn't talk, but does know, but does know, right? If somebody says, please close your eyes, I'm going to put in your mouth uh, a piece of chocolate. It's going to be either dark chocolate or milk chocolate. See how long it takes you to determine whether it's milk chocolate or dark chocolate. Please open up. And you pop one of the two in. How long does it take you? Or I'm going to put either salt or sugar in your mouth. How long does it take you? Before you can think it, you've already known it. You don't have to think, gosh, that's salty. Before the gosh comes out, or that, uh, before any of that comes, you've already got it. And so if you say, that's salty, that's kind of like a rerun. You're saying something was already known, so what do we need that commentary for? And that was milk chocolate, it wasn't dark chocolate, but you knew it before you said it. So it's seeking here, seeking to rest in that flow, which is discerning, it's clear, it's sharp, it's intelligent, but it's pre-articulation, pre-conceptualization. I'm not saying it's absolutely pre-conceptualization, because after all, you have to have some kind of a conceptual construct to be able to demarcate milk chocolate from dark chocolate. That's quite true. That's exactly true in the substrate consciousness. It said luminous, blissful, and non-conceptual. But when it says non-conceptual, it doesn't mean totally non-conceptual. It means it's free of coarse conceptualization. There's subtle conceptualization there. On the Sutrayana path, it's only when you gave a non-conceptual, unmediated, non-dual realization of emptiness only then, for the first time, is your mind totally non-conceptual. On the Sutrayana path, that's it. Until you have that direct non-conceptual realization of emptiness, all of your states of consciousness have at least some subliminal degree of conceptualization, the configuration by thoughts, images, and so forth. 
Now, of course, that is the key right there, that statement, sutrayana path. Let's say mahayana path. You become an Aryabhadasattva. You've just, for the first time, slipped into meditative equipoise in the non-conceptual realization of emptiness. And what happens to your mandala when you slip into that meditative equipoise? What happens to your mandala? Gone, yeah. Emerson gave the mudra. No appearances. And it's not the no appearances of the substrate. That was a weak facsimile. This is the no appearances as in it's emptiness only. Only nirvana. Well, what's that going to be like? Like what an arhat has after having died. Right? Only nirvana. No trace, no fragrance, no vestige of samsara or the phenomenal world. That's the post-mortem arhat. Well, there's also the Aryabhadasattva while dwelling, dwelling in this non-conceptual realization of emptiness. Because you being in this center of a mandala, there is no conceptual designation whatever. And since all phenomena within your mandala, and everybody else's mandala, since all phenomena arise independent upon conceptual designation, and without conceptual, conceptual designation do not exist, therefore, while you are in meditative equipoise, from your perspective, there are no phenomena. Any more than for the post-mortem arhat. Now, we can't even speak of gender, so it's silly. I'm not going to say him. Just the post-mortem arhat. Center of a mandala that is... The center is the same as everywhere else. It's just nirvana. It's just dharmadhatu. Right? No conceptual designation. No conceptual designation. No phenomena. So, meanwhile, back in taking the mind as a path, it's resting in that sheer, simple, stripped-down, naked awareness that is cognizant and luminous, directing the light of that awareness to the space of the mind and whatever arises within it, and knowing whatever's coming up. It's discerning. It's not spacing out. It's discerning. It recognizes whatever coming up. It just doesn't need to talk about it. You know, it already knows it before the blah, blah, blah. And if the blah, blah comes up, that's just more of the stuff you're observing from a non-blah, blah, blah perspective. Right? So, that's, so the grasping then, I'll just finish that thought. The grasping starts from within the context of a lucid dream. Catherine Skiro shows up and somebody says, is she here? She, yeah, she's right over there. But there's no reification there at all. You're lucid. But if, if Marta wants to go speak with Catherine, she's wondering where she is. Oh, she's right over there. You can talk with her. You know. So there's no, there's no delusion there, but it's a subtle form of grasping. It's not delusional, but it's a type of grasping. And it's unnecessary. You don't need to say, there's Catherine Skiro, or there's a mental affliction, there's happiness, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's bliss, there's faith. You don't need to do that. Because that, all of that is coming out of your coarse mind. And it's kind of like, one, one of you at least has, has done scuba diving. But imagine if you try to go scuba diving, but you're wearing a whole bunch of balloons. And you keep on wanting to go, <laughs> and the balloons keep on the surface the whole time, right? Well, that's what all the chit-chat does. It keeps you on the surface. It keeps you right in the froth of your coarse mind. And so then your mind is not going to settle in its natural state, because that's called a descent. Really, it's a nice, nice, nice metaphor of scuba diving. It's a descent. Right? You're releasing, you're releasing, and your, your mind is descending and, in the process, dissolving into the substrate. 
kunji, literally, the basis of all, the basis of all your mental events, basis of all your states of consciousness within samsara. So it starts with this benign grasping, but then just to see the gradient. So beyond the benign grasping of, like there's Catherine's girl right over there, but then in a non-lucid dream, a non-lucid dream, Daniel says, Catherine's girl here? She says, yeah, she's right over there. And I think Daniel is really there, and he really asked, and I'm, I'm really over here, and Daniel, you have to go through the space over there. She's about, oh, about seven meters away. You'll have to walk over there, because she's way over there. Over there. And you start jerking your finger. You know, the one who is over there from her own side, as you are, and me, of course, I'm over here, but you need to go over there. And so now we're reifying the space. We're reifying everyone who's in the space. There's nothing malevolent about this. I'm just saying she's over there, but it's a root delusion, because she isn't really over there, only in a manner of speaking. But when we reify, so no, 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 she's really over there. I'll show you. I'll come over and punch her in the shoulder, lightly. There you go. I just showed you. That's the end of the debate. Punching, you know, lightly punching Catherine Skiro in the shoulder. Now, do you need any, any more proof? I'll punch her in the other shoulder, you know? She's really there. Okay, I'll punch her in the jaw. How, how much do you want? <laughs> that really seems to prove it. Now, if you can punch somebody, they must be really there. Except you can punch people in the dream, and they're not really there. Right? So that's another level of grasping. Then. Not merely the demarcating, the demarcating, and then the reification. Right? And then, now we can start laying it on. Thinking that, sorry to pick on you, Catherine, but you, know, you, you were just the innocent bystander today. So then on top of having reified her, then you can think, oh, she's a really rich dame. You know, she's, she's got lots of money. And man, do I want, I'm, I'm developing some real, I really like Catherine Skiro. I like her a lot. I want her to like me, you know? And so I can start developing this real craving attachment because she's this really rich lady and she can fulfill all my desires. Just give me a lot of money. So I can start craving that. Or I can feel, you know, aversion, the same thing. Oh, well, we don't need to make a story for that. But craving or aversion, well, then she's the source of all my problems throughout life. You know, it always boils, always boils down to her. She's always the one behind it. Every single time I've had a bit, it was always Catherine Skiro behind it. Like it's her life's mission to make me miserable. You know? You know? So now I've found the true culprit. You know? So we can do that, craving and hostility, and that's rooted in delusion. And this is still considered kind of like normal because it happens all the time. And we say, well, we're human beings. That's what we do. Right? But then, of course, you can just keep on going. Uh, and that is, it can become obsessive, infatuation really infatuation, you know, that can really get addiction, infatuation, pathological anger, and then it can just keep on going, out to schizophrenia, paranoia, a, a violent, violent schizophrenia, and so forth. And so we see a smooth spectrum, and that's all grasping. The, para the paranoid, you know, psychotic that is, is sure that somebody is out to get him, and then finally kills that person, well, it, it's just grasping. But it's a smooth spectrum from, oh, Catherine's over there which is benign, non-malignant. Buddhas will do that. The Buddha said, take, you know, be an islander to yourself and all of that without reification. And so, coming back to this practice, and then I'll finish the quote and we'll go into the practice. Um, as much as you can, you release all grasping. As much as you can. You won't be perfect. You won't be perfect, but as much as you can, release all grasping. And that's especially for the craving and hostility, the hopes and fears, 
they come up with respect to whatever is arising in the mind. I hope that'll stop. I had a really bad day yesterday. So many upheavals came. I really hope it stops soon. Well, welcome to not practicing. You know, or I had a really good day yesterday. I hope it happened, it happened again today. It, was, it really went well. I hope so. I hope so. Let's see. I'll try. More grasping. Same old, same old. You know. And then the reification, of course. But also even the labeling. Just do the practice. Just do the practice and release grasping, even subtle grasping, as much as you can. Don't expect to be perfect, but do your best. And then you'll see how this, this, this relates exactly to dream yoga. I mean, we're really here for dream yoga, and this is about dream yoga. We'll get to it when we get to the text, and I'm eager to meditate, because then we'll have a silent session again coming. Um, but it, within, within the context of a non-lucid dream, to simply be labeling, oh, there's, you know, there's Amy, and there's Beata, and so forth, problem. But as soon as there's reification, and on top of that, there's, within the non-lucid dream, as soon as there's some hope, oh, I hope Amy does this for me, I hope Beata doesn't do this to me, then you just lock yourself in. You may as well just hold out your arms. Put on the manacles. Because as soon as you're hoping that somebody else in the dream will do this and won't do that, I want to remain non-lucid, please. Isn't it clear? You're just absolutely perpetuating your non-lucidity by hoping that somebody else that doesn't even exist will do something for you or against you. So, similar fashion here. So now we continue in the last beat, and then we'll go right to the practice. And then, then there'll, be no there'll be no explanation during the practice. Just do it. But this is very powerful. Due to settling the mind in its natural state, there may arise sensations such as physical and mental well-being or bliss, a sense of lucid consciousness, the appearance of empty form, just that, you know what that means, and then this powerful phrase, and a non-conceptual sense that nothing can harm the mind regardless of whether or not ideation has ceased. When you've really gotten into that flow of not grasping and, a, and core not reifying, then whatever's coming up, memories of the worst things that ever happened to you in your life or fantasies about the best things you can imagine happening in your life and emotions and desires, insofar as you're not identifying with them, that's another kind of grasping, so Catherine is my friend, and he's my student, and that's my, 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 my. Well, that's just one more form of grasping, of course. You have to release that. So insofar as you can be able to release the grasping into my thoughts, they are me, they are mine, or reifying them. And you're not reifying them, you're simply seeing them from what they are. They are, in fact, empty appearances. Then whether they continue or not, you know they can't harm you. And it's like watching, like an adult watching a children's television show. You know, where a big dragon comes up. You know, it's for five-year-olds. Big dragon, fire coming from its mouth. You know, and you know how afraid is the adult watching the children's show going to be? I know when I was about eight. This is 1958, a long time ago. Eight, ten, or so. The first Godzilla movie came out from Japan. Scared the crap out of. I thought, man, that's scary. You know? <laughs> yeah, an old yeller. Oh boy, when the boy had to kill his dog, that ripped my heart out. He had to kill his own dog. It's 
one of the meanest things that Walt Disney ever did to children in the 1950s. <laughs> and poor Bambi's mother, too. But Walt Disney had a kind of a mean streak in him, I think. In any case, when you're a kid, you know, you reify all of this. And when you're an adult, then you say, hey, it's a cartoon. Or, you know, it's not even a cartoon. Godzilla, I don't know what they made out of, but it would be pretty funny nowadays. So there it is. But it's watching television, it's watching a 3D movie, it's watching your mind. But when you really know it, you're not reifying it. You just know, you smile, you see somebody coming at you at a knife, you say, plunge it in, guy. How many times do you want to do it? Knock yourself out. You know. So, whatever kinds of mental imagery occur, be they gentle or violent, subtle or gross, of long or short duration, strong or weak, good or bad, observe their nature and avoid any obsessive evaluation of them as being one thing and not another. So the obsessive evaluation is getting you caught right back up in your mind again. Right? As much as possible, you're trying to view it from the substrate consciousness. And then he says, here's the essence, let the heart of your practice be consciousness in its natural state, lucid and vivid, acting as your own mentor, if you can bring the essential points to perfection, as if you were threading a needle, the afflictions of your own mind stream will be inhibited, and you will gain the autonomy of not succumbing to them, and your mind will be constantly calm and composed. And this is a sound basis for the arising of all samadhis of the state of generation and completion. So he's teaching this before Vajrayana. But by clear, he just said so. So, that's the core teaching. It's in your notes, it's, uh, and it will come soon. But that's what I wanted to share. If, you have, if you're crystal clear on the essence of the essence, which I just narrated to you, gave the transmission, because I received this from Kembo Jigme Pinso, who said to be one of the two incarnations of Lerap Lingba, then that will serve you very well. And it will be a fantastic daytime preparation for lucid dreaming. So now, let's all enjoy silence for 24 minutes. Settle the mind in this natural state. You may begin with mindfulness of breathing.
all of us. Time is a passing. Let's return to the text. Very important material today. So we're on page 145. We've just finished in the training and thoughts being like a mirage, and we move on. Then, so the previous was with the mirror, right? The mirror, the echo, then regarding your thoughts as being like a mirage. Then he said, then imagine that the mirror reflection dissolves into your own body. Now we move into the realm of visualization. And meditate on your body as appearing and yet having no inherent nature. So this is a kind of a common visualization in Vajrayana altogether, um, in the kind of foundational teachings, when you're really seeking to overcome the, the real strong attachment and identification with the body, the body as something pure, desirable, and all of that, then you very much visualize your internal organs and all of that to develop you know, detachment from it. But when you move into the Vajrayana territory, then we just we assume that you've kind of gotten over it, you know, you're no longer attached to your physical form. Um, and so now in the Vajrayana, it's very common to visualize your body as hollow, just imagining it to be hollow, just kind of a body of light, but literally empty inside, not simply empty of inherent nature, but just more like a mirage or a holographic image, that would be very close. So imagine your body is appearing and yet having no inherent nature, no substance to it, no stuff. At times consider this, the Bhagavan, the great sage, of course referring to the Buddha, discussed all phenomena in terms of ten analogies. And I believe these ten analogies run through all schools of Buddhism, the Pali Canon and all the rest. So discuss all phenomena in terms of the ten analogies. So here they are. All composite phenomena are like an illusion. So that's what illusionists create, remember, with the power of samadhi, mantra, and a physical substance. Like a dream, like a mirage, like a reflection, like a city of Gandharvas. So in our Western terminology, it'd be like a city of fairies or leprechauns or something like that. But a city, but then it just poof, it's gone. You know? So I think we have that in our Western fairy tales and so forth. But this is actually not a fairy tale, um, very much part of Buddhist worldview. Uh, all phenomena, all conditions, or composite phenomena being like an echo, like the, reflection, the moon's reflection in water, like a bubble. It looks like it has some little substance to it, but of course it's empty. Like an optical illusion. The analogy given here is if you just press one eye, and then you see double. Okay, You see the double image. Don't poke yourself too hard, please. Uh, well, there it is. It's a double image, but it's an empty image, right? So, like, and then like a phantom. Okay, so and, and the point of all of these, what they all tend to have in common, is they do appear, but they don't exist as they appear. They appear to be really there from their own side. You might even be able to photograph them, like a mirage, a reflection in a, in a mirror, and so on. Um, but they're not really there. Looking for a rainbow, I don't see a rainbow among those. That's interesting. Okay, but a rainbow is another one. So, so they are not truly so. They are not truly existent. They do not exist from their own side, by their own nature. At times, if you have companions, have them speak to you. Or if you do not, imagine mentally praising yourself and showing a great deal of respect for yourself. Well, if you do this, maybe save it till Sunday. You know? <laughs> but this would be, you know, teaming up with a buddy and say, okay, now, okay, Elizabeth. Uh, I'm going to abuse you, but I don't really mean it, right? Okay, but this is in a laboratory condition. 
I'm going to really launch into you and I'm going to really abuse you. But we know, we know what we're doing. We're just following Padmasambhava's teaching. And I'll launch into her. Say, maybe even really nasty stuff, you know, that might otherwise, I mean, I, I mean, I called Marta the other day a silly goose. You know, that's what my grandmother used. That was her terminology when she wanted to tease somebody. Oh, you silly goose. You know, there's not much clout. Not much, but, you know, we've got good ways of abusing each other nowadays. So do that. And then Elizabeth has her turn, you know. Like, oh, you big silly goose, Alan. Whatever. Um, but you do that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then praise. Do the same thing you're doing with a mirror, but that now actually have somebody who looks like they have some substance to them, like a real other person. And you can imagine they actually mean it. Now, this is all done with bodhicitta motivation. But he's saying, you know, not, notch it up a bit. Ratchet it up a little bit. And see now, okay, with a mirror, that was pretty easy you know where it's coming from. And now it's pretty easy too. You know this is not just a person you're meeting out, out there who really is, really adulates you or really despises you. You know that's not the case. This is your Dharma friend. You're working. So you know that. But nevertheless, I've heard in movies, I don't know whether this is true, but I've heard in movies that if you have the hero and the anti-hero and they're just venting they're in the movie, the script, you know, two professional actors, I've heard that sometimes it gives a real edge to their relationship off, off screen. You know, just when, it's, when they're really good actors, you know, it looks really serious. You know. And maybe there's special effects and so forth, and they're actually cutting your throat and so forth and so on. But I wouldn't be surprised. And, and then there was that Heath Ledger, wasn't it? Heath Ledger played the role, and he played it superbly, played the role of a really mean, mean, mean character in one of the Batman films. And what I read... And I don't know, I don't, but this is what I read, that it just got into him, that, that meanness, the vileness, the evil, real sinister evil of the character he was playing. You look at him, he's like this really sweet-looking young guy, handsome and kind of carefree, plays light comedy really well and so forth. He committed suicide. So I'm sure it's more complex than that. But even, even playing the role, you know, can sometimes kind of get to you. So handle this with care, people by listening by podcast. Very careful, very careful. As they say, you know, this, this driver was on a professional driver on a closed track. You ever seen one of those? Don't try this at home. So tread carefully here. But have them speak to you, or if you do not, then um, this is easier. Imagine mentally praising yourself and showing a great deal of respect for yourself. That you can do, that we can all do. And then when you do this, when you're kind of lavishing praise upon yourself, if pleasurable thoughts arise, equalize them in the absence of true existence. So it's all three. You remember the speaker, the speech, and the speaky, the person who's listening to the speech, okay, the recipient, the listener. If there's no listener, then, you know, then the triad is gone. You're just a soliloquy. So here it is that in this, in this triad of the speaker, the speech, and the one who's listening, recognize the emptiness of inherent nature of all three. Emptiness of inherent nature of all three. And then that takes all the zing out of it, all of the punch, all of the, the I should, fluctuations of the mind, very much. I mean, it's again, this is bear mind, this is dream yoga, right? Very much as if you're in a, in a lucid dream. And in the lucid dream, somebody praises you or ridicules you, shows contempt, disgust for you. If you're very lucid, then you equalize it because you know, hey, this is, this is an empty appearance of my own mind 
ridiculing or despising or praising and adulating another empty appearance of my mind. So then how seriously do we take that? So that was with praise. And then he said, now we're on top of page 146. Then, imagine being abused, robbed, and beaten. This is where you really let the kind of the luminosity of your awareness take manifest its creativity. And imagine being abused. Imagine being robbed. Imagine being beaten. Okay, so really heavy-duty stuff. And if a mental state of displeasure arises, equalize it in the absence of true existence. So this is daytime practice, right? This is something you can do. Daytime practice. Much as possible, whatever understanding you have of the middle way view, the perfection of wisdom, the teachings on emptiness, dependent origination, whatever you have, it's not enough to have a good understanding. Uh, whatever understanding you have, you really want to use it. It's like faith. It's like faith. You know? We may have some faith in a lama, like the Dalai Lama, or the Buddha, or Padmasambhava, or what have you. But simply having faith, that's kind of like having pocket change, you know, having a billfold, or having money. But if you don't spend it, then, then you just have it. And it just sits there like a wad of paper in your purse or your wallet. It's not doing any good. So if, whether it's faith, whether it's understanding, use it. Apply it. Live it. View reality from that perspective. And then it grows and it transforms. So what, this is really crucial. That is, whatever understanding, don't just say, oh yeah, I, I read that, I've got, I've got a pretty good conceptual, conceptual understanding. And then back to business as usual. Okay? That kind of split in the personality, which happens so often. I've said it, I'll mention it very briefly, but people who, you know, when they're writing, they're doing the science and so forth, they're materialists. And they say, I'm a materialist, I'm a materialist. But when they're with their kids, they're not materialists at all. Well, that's actually really good for the kids. But then why are you pretending to be a materialist? You know, if you're not willing to live it, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't, if you're not willing to drink it yourself, you shouldn't pass, off, pass on that poison Kool-Aid to anybody else. If you really are teaching it, drink it yourself. Like that, that wonderful scene in Aaron Brockovich. Remember when she was talking to that little fat cat who's polluting all the water? And he's saying, it's fine, it's fine, the water's really good, don't worry about it. And she said, oh yeah, well here, here's a, here's a glass of water from the from the area that you're polluting, go ahead and drink it. And then you see this withdrawal, like, well, maybe not right now. You know, talking one talk, but no, actually, I don't want to drink the water, but I'm perfectly happy if other people drink it. Because we're making so much profit here, it's unbelievable. So there it is. It's just a simple theme, that if you adopt a view that you think is authentic, then try it out see how it works. When the, rubber, when the rubber hits the road, is that a view that really helps you, brings you to a deeper understanding of reality, brings you towards genuine happiness? So it's the pragmatic criterion, isn't it? The pragmatic criterion. If something's true, then it should have pragmatic value, and not just epistemic, that it sounded good, you got some good logical solicism, you have some evidence to back up your view. That's all very fine. That's good. That's epistemic. But again, in Buddhism, we're really, generally speaking, we're just not interested in truths that have no relevance to the pursuit of liberation and awakening. As the Buddha said when he was walking with Ananda, pick up one leaf, in the, and it was like, the, you, know, you know the story. He's walking through, and just the, the whole forest floor is covered with leaves. And he picks up one leaf, and he said, Ananda, the teachings that the, Babagan, the, 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 the Tathagata, the Buddha gives, that's one leaf. That which I'm aware of, that's all the leaves in the forest. But we don't need to talk about all the other stuff. 
I'm here for, it turned out, teaching only about 45 years or so, I'm here to teach what is really important for you to gain liberation, freedom, and all the other stuff. Well, you'll, you'll see it yourself when the time comes. But we're not just going to go on an excursion for curiosity. So there it is. So, meditate on this as being in no way different than praising or abusing a reflection in a mirror. Okay, well, it isn't, right? And then we continue, when you, act, when you are actually praised or abused, so now it's no longer playtime, it's no longer a stage with your Dharma buddy and so forth, you're out and about, you're in the world, and then sometimes people do abuse or praise you. When you are actually praised or abused, equalize it as if it were a reflection in a mirror. So there's a very smooth step-by-step in the mirror, in your imagination, with a Dharma buddy, all with good motivation. Even if your language is really mean and hostile, you're just two actors. And of course, it happened many times, the two actors, old seasoned actors, you know, they played all kinds of roles, and then in the, in the latest movie, they may have been bitterest enemies. And as soon as they say, that's a take, they're off to, you know, off to have dinner together, maybe with the, with the, with the husband and children. So that's it, that's it play it, but then if you can actually bring that out into the actual life where there seems to be somebody actually there who looks like they're there from their own side, and they really mean it. They're really praising you or really ridiculing you, abusing you, despising you. Then, see, good. How far along that trajectory could you go? From that kind of almost silly one of looking into a mirror, most people just chuckling, step by step. It's very skillful means, isn't it? And then if you can do that, then you're seeing Paul Hey, wasn't it equanimity we're working on this morning? Son of a gun. Right? Equanimity out, equanimity in. So, if attachment or hatred arises, you really like it when people are praising you, you feel uneasy, defensive, angry, resentful, when people show you disrespect, train in the previous meditation objects for a long time. In other words, you may need to hang out here for a while. This is the impure, illusory body. This is really important. Thus, if all the eight mundane concerns arise in your mind stream as being similar to an illusion, you are adept in the practice of the impure, illusory body. And that is the third session. Well, that's really big. But now let's just relate this to a lucid dream or to a non-lucid dream, both. And that is, you're in the midst of a dream, and as long as you're upset, or you feel craving or aversion to, let's say, some sensual pleasure, you know, or sensual displeasure, those are, those are those two. Hedonic, really, it's hedonic pleasure. It's not just sensual, like food and stuff. It's hedonic pleasure. Hedonic pleasure includes all kinds of hedonic pleasures, but especially the sensual or sensory. When you're in the midst of a dream and you're still really looking, you're still trying to, you're really trying to dodge the hedonic displeasure, and then you pick up the scent and you start scurrying after something you think will make you happy and you get it and you want to hold on to it. As long as you're in that mode of attachment to pleasure and aversion to displeasure within the dream, your chances of becoming lucid are zero. Right? And then getting stuff. Remember? Acquisition and loss. As long as within the dream you're hoping to get the new car, the new this, the new that, the new iPhone, they just sold 10 million of them. A lot of people are in a non-lucid dream, I think. You know? 
you're still after stuff, and you've got your stuff, and you want to make sure you don't lose it, right? Because your happiness depends on that. Then you're just guaranteed you're going to be in this non-lucid dream for a long time. Or just pass out, go into non-lucid dreamless sleep, and have your next incarnation. Non-lucid all over again. And then praise. If it gets to you, if you feel uplifted, it's a nice word. If you, I was feeling a bit glum, but then this person came and was so respectful to me, and so showed so much appreciation and really praised me, and I felt so much better afterwards. I felt uplifted. <laughs> As if now you're better than you were before they spoke. Because <laughs> they said so. You're a really pretty rabbit. You feel uplifted. I said a pretty rabbit. Not an ugly rabbit, but you're Emerson, you're such a pretty rabbit. If you feel uplifted, really? Why? <laughs> That's cute. She gave me the little the little rabbit 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 nose. Or, you know, the same thing, the opposite side. Somebody shows some disrespect, ridicule, despise, contempt, dismissiveness, and so forth. You feel, oh, a little bit downcast. Downcast, oh. Then get real comfortable in your non-lucid dream. You're going to be hanging out for a while. And then the final one, in Genlam Rimba, I often mention this, but Genlam Rimba, the extraordinary yogi, spent, I think, by the time he finally passed away, probably 35 years in solitude. Really, yogi's yogi. I had a great good fortune to live with him for a full year in the same house. And then I was... Before that, up in the mountains above Dharmazala, I was nearby a neighbor in my own little cottage. But he said, that's the last one to go. The final one is this. They just call it reputation. Uh, but it's richer than that in English. It's richer than that. It's just see how they sound in English. And I think you can translate into Portuguese, Spanish, and so forth. It goes quite smoothly for European languages. Appreciation. Do you feel appreciated? Do you feel acknowledged? That's a nice one. Do you feel acknowledged? Do you feel, feel respected? Highly regarded. That whole group there. Gilan remember said, that's the last one to go. For these yogis up on the side of the mountain, you know. They've given up clearly. I mean, it's so obvious they've given up attachment to stuff because they're living in these Neanderthal huts with almost nothing. You know. So if that's not the right place to go if you really want stuff. Well, that was the wrong neighborhood. And so, not that. Sensual pleasures, we had some nice sunsets. Because I lived up there. We had some nice sunsets. That was about it. <laughs> there wasn't much going on. You know, we're all living on dal and rice, future patis, you know, really, really basic. So food didn't give us a whole lot of pleasure. And then praise, well, you're living in solitude, you're not talking, so if you're looking for praise, definitely the wrong neighborhood. Not getting any praise or abuse, and just kind of a whole bunch of yogis sitting in their cabin meditating all the time. They hardly spoke a little bit once in a while, like here, maybe a little bit less. <laughs> Probably a lot less. But the final one, he said, as you were gazing up, McLeod Gunge is right down there. A crow could, you know, like a, a crow, it'd be maybe one kilometer, just would just glide right down to McLeod Gunge, the Tibetan village on, the, on this ridge, and then the Dalai Lama's compound beyond that, and then Dharmazala below that, and then the Congra Valley. But you just see this little community with all the Tibetans in it. And Genlam Rinpoche said the last one to go was you're gazing down there. And of course, the Tibetans know who the yogis are. They know. And they'll, they'll bring them food. 
And that often they bring, bring me food. They didn't care what color my, color my skin was. They'd bring me a rupee note. They would just drop by and wouldn't ask for anything and drop me a little rupee note or a little package of biscuits. You know, and they just drop it and then head back down. They're not expecting to talk to anybody because you know they know we're up there to not talk. But again, I remember said the last thing to go was uh, the thought down there, they probably think I'm a holy man. <laughs> that I'm really a yogi. That I'm really got renunciation. <laughs> and enjoying the thought. <laughs> That's the last one to go. You have to release that in that one. But that's it. Within the dream, within the dream, if you still care, if you're still moved, uplifted or downcast by how your reputation goes, what people say behind your back, what they think of you, whether they admire you or they don't admire you, they think you're a fake or they think you're incredibly authentic, as long as you're still letting your sense of identity, your sense of value, your emotions rise, rise and fall, with whatever other people think about you. You're in the non-lucid dream, you're going to stay there. It's the way it is. So this is daytime practice. To as much as possible equalize, and equalize with this one insight. Nothing here has inherent nature of its own, any more than if you were in a dream. No more, no less. Nothing has any inherent nature, not you, not anybody else. And so whatever is coming up, this complete equanimity, and that's a sign of an authentic Dharma practitioner, is an equilibrium, a composure. But one would add in the Mahayana, and we'll, we'll end, we'll end right on time tonight, and then I'll probably get to these, there's, it looks like there's one question still waiting, orphaned. Um, but there is a bit more to it than that. And we see it in the seven-point mind training. You're your basis is that equilibrium, that composure, that groundedness, which of course is coming also exactly from the shamatha practice, like settling the mind in its natural state. If you can be there in the front row seat of your mind and witness all that comes and goes, all the upheavals, the good days and the bad days, the quiet days and the turbulent days, the upheaval days and the respite from upheaval days, and if you can maintain equilibrium in that, then you're a practitioner. And then you're really a practitioner. You've established a basis in samadhi for all the samadhis of state regeneration and completion, tekchut and tutkyal. And he says, do it until you've done it. Just like Padmasambhava said. You know, settle, continue until you've settled your mind into natural state. Only then are you really qualified to venture into these more advanced practices. You can do them, you'll get good imprints. But will you really be on a path? Can you really say you're on a path? Your shamat is down at level three or two or something like that, and there you are visualizing yourself as this deity and doing these Solomon practices and doing this tektrit practice and maybe doing some tutkyo practice. Can you really say you're on a path when the mind you're bringing to all of these is like a grubby bowl with holes in it? You know? So, so, but I'm, the last point, I just have about 25 seconds, is your foundation is that, that composure, that equilibrium, that imperturbability. That's a real sign of a practitioner. You really have calmed, equalized the eight mundane concerns. But there's one more point, and that's in the seven-point mind training. A sense of good cheer. 
a lightness, a buoyancy, a sense of well-being. Not just equanimity, but a sense of well-being. The heart is full. And then, as with His Holiness, He's such a superb example. I think He's the best example I know. So I'm biased. He's my root lama. But wherever He goes, there is such warmth and such good cheer, such kindness, but it's also such joy. You know, and it's so spontaneous. It's like hardly, it hardly, hardly takes anything to trip it, to trigger it. You know, almost nothing. Three tall, skinny men coming into his room, that was enough to trigger him, you know, into a lot of laughter. Such warm-hearted, but definite belly laughter. You know. And so many other cases. You see it, we see it everywhere. Uh, that's what he's bringing with him. You know, that equilibrium, no matter how much he's abused, slandered, by Buddhists, by communists, by who knows what. Calm as an ocean. Equanimity. But not just equanimity. That incredible sense of, of warmth, of kindness, and good cheer. So, quite extraordinary. Quite inspiring. And that's it. So that's it for the impure illusory body. You have your work cut out for you. And don't say you can't do it. Because you can. I do know, as I'm just wrapping up here, I do know people, because I've done a lot of workshop with Stephen LaBerge and so forth, I've been around for a while. There are people who have lots of lucid dreams and seems to have no impact on their lives at all. They just have really good nightlife. They go to the good clubs, you know, one lucid dream after another, and they're really interesting, a lot of fun, and, and so forth and so on. But it can happen. You can have lots of lucid dreams and have virtually no impact on your life at all. All the same mired down in eight mundane concerns, no path, no particular concern about virtue and non-virtue. You're just good at lucid dreaming. So by itself, it's fun, that's for sure. It's a lot of fun, it's really interesting. But not that big a deal. So I'm really hoping you're placing, you know, we all want to drive benefit from the practice. But know where the benefit is. It's not simply in having lucid dreams. It's doing the practice just described here. That's the brings the real benefit. And if you have some lucid dreams on top of that, mazel tov. <laughs>